The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone, so now we come to the sixth of the seven ways of uh, giving up defilements. Uh, and uh, this is called giving up by dispelling, uh, uh, vinodana, is like getting rid of, basically. Uh, and uh, this is a very a thing that you see in the suttas quite a lot. This has to do with uh, when bad thoughts have already arisen, what you actually do with those bad thoughts or bad perceptions or whatever, how you get rid of them once they are there. So what we have seen so far, uh, a lot of it has to do with restraining, uh, how to hold back, how to avoid things arising, Yeah, the trick of using in the right way of avoiding things, uh, restraining, all is in that area of restraining, trying to stop things from arising in the first place. That's kind of the first of the four aspects of right effort, Yeah, the first aspect unarisen, unwholesome qualities uh, should not arise. Uh. The second one of the right efforts is to overcome arisen, unwholesome qualities. Uh. So this, what we come to now, is really the second aspect of the right effort. And then the very last one, the seventh way of um, uh, giving up unwholesome qualities uh, is actually the same as the third and the fourth, maybe, uh, of the four right efforts, giving rise to good qualities, essentially. So this is the sixth one, the second last one. So um, so we're kind of gradually, as you can see, moving forward. It's like we are coming to deeper aspects of the path very slowly and uh, moving towards the, the very end, the big crescendo at the end. So let's see what this says. And this is a fairly common way of expressing this. And it says, what are the defilements? that should be given up by dispelling. This is the sixth one on page 16. Take a mendicant who, reflecting properly, does not tolerate a sensual, malicious or cruel thought that has arisen, but gives it up, gets rid of it, eliminates it and obliterates it. They don't tolerate any bad, unwholesome qualities that have arisen but get, give them up, get rid of them, elim eliminate them, and obliterate them. For the distressing and feverish defilements that might arise in someone who lives without dispelling these things uh, do not arise when they are dispelled. These are called the defilements that should be given up by dispelling. So um, again, you have this idea of reflecting properly, yeah, which is kind of comes throughout this sutta, which makes it very interesting and which makes it appropriate. Kind of the theme is a proper reflection or, or reflecting or whatever. Yeah. And uh, so again, reflecting properly here. Yeah. And this is kind of critical for understanding what comes next. Uh. So here you have the three kinds of thought, uh, which is what you often come across in the suttas, called bitaka. And uh, they are thoughts, the desires for the sensory objects of the world, yeah, called sensual thoughts, which probably is a little bit narrow, to be honest. Uh, 
malicious thoughts or angry thoughts, yeah, thoughts motivated by anger, where anger is the driving force. And the last one is vihingsa uh, vitaka, this very interesting word vihingsa, which has to do with like harming, harmfulness, yeah. And cruel is perhaps a bit too narrow because cruel almost sort of implies enjoyment of hurting others. Uh, but uh, that is not necessarily what it is about. Uh, it is about not caring about others, uh, not giving, you know, not uh, <laughs> not um, being inconsiderate, uh, being ruthless, uh, yeah, not caring if others hurt while you do your things. Uh, I think I mentioned this before very briefly. Uh, yeah, doing your business and getting, making sure you make lots of money, and if you hurt people on the way, then that's their problem, not yours. Uh, that kind of attitude, uh, cold-heartedness. Uh, and uh, so that is the vihingsa vitaka. And of course, the opposite of that is to have compassion, uh, is to care how your action actions affect other people and other beings in this world, uh, because it's not nice to hurt others. Uh, yeah, and uh, that's kind of the uh, idea there. Uh. So it's the opposite of compassion. Uh, cold-hearted, ruthless. Is what uh, callous is a is a nice word. A uh, callous uh, attitude. Uh. So. Um, these are the thoughts that arise, and once they arise, usually it's good to kind of get hold of them as soon as possible, because the longer they have arisen, the more entrenched they become, and the harder it is to get rid of them. The more sharp your mindfulness is, the earlier on you catch the arising of these th thoughts, the easier it is to get rid of them. If you wait too long, it's almost impossible to get rid of. In fact, that's what the Buddha says in a few suttas. He says specifically, once it has arisen, you just have to almost like sit back and endure until the thought comes to an end. So you have to be fairly quick to get these things. That's why mindfulness really matters. Uh. And then comes this really interesting set of words. Yeah, You give it up. You get rid of it. Uh. You eliminate it. You obliterate it. Uh. Yeah, as I mentioned before, it sounds really, it sounds like you're using a lot of force. Yeah, obliteration. I don't know. <laughs> It sounds like uh, I don't know. It's like getting the sledgehammer out and crushing to you know to smithereens. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, but what is so fascinating about this, and I did mention this before, and I mention this always because I, I think this is a very important part of how the dhamma works and how the mind works, uh, is that if you're going to obliterate something, uh, if you really are going to eliminate something completely. Uh, then willpower is not going to work. The sledgehammer is not going to do the job. The sledgehammer, there's no wisdom in the sledgehammer. There's just brute force in the sledgehammer. I have used sledgehammers in the monastery. I know what they're like. There's lots of force in them. And so that it doesn't work. And this is kind of what is so fascinating. And the reason why it doesn't work is that if you use brute force on your mind, you haven't really overcome that thought in a substantial way. All you're really doing is suppressing it. You're holding it down with force. Uh, and sometimes that works because sometimes you are kind of distracted in the meantime and the thought sort of disappears while you're holding it down like that. So it can work, uh, but very often you hold it down and then it comes back again later on. Uh, you haven't really done anything proper to counteract that thought, uh, to go in the opposite direction. Uh, yeah, so it comes back again uh, and then bang, it hits you in the face. Uh, and in the meantime, you have spent a lot of energy holding it down. So sometimes if you use a lot of willpower, willpower is exhausting. Uh, yeah, And you know that if you have a job where you have to work hard, and not all jobs in this world are always delightful. I'm sure you know what I mean. Uh, sometimes you have to do things that you 
not all that keen on doing. And then if you, that is the case, you have to force your attention onto the thing. Yeah, it's like you have to concentrate really hard. You have to use willpower to make it work. And they say that some of the most tiring jobs in the world is like being a flight controller. Because when you are a flight controller, you have to be aware. If you're not aware, then the planes are going to crash into each other. Yeah, so it's a very important job and you probably feel pressure and then you feel very exhausted apparently after that, those kind of jobs because you have to be alert and aware at all times. So this is the problem with willpower. It is both depleting of your energy, that energy which you need for meditation, and also it doesn't really work. It does not obliterate the thing. It just holds it down for a while. It's like when you hold the lid on a boiling kettle. Yeah, as soon as you let go, poof, it all comes back out again. It's a bit like that. So um, for that reason, it is very interesting when you read, we'll see this in a second, that these words in the suttas too, they don't actually mean willpower. They mean using wisdom properly reflecting, as it says here, patisanka yonisoha. That is actually what it means. Uh, yeah, and uh, the reason why it means that is because when you reflect properly, uh, when you counter that very negative thought or bad thought in your mind with the opposite, uh, the thought actually disappears completely. It is replaced by something else, by different perception, uh, and then it is gone. Uh, and then it really is obliterated in a proper way, yeah? because it's no longer there. Your mind is focusing in a completely different direction, in a completely different way. And that thought cannot coexist with the opposite thought. So wisdom power is both less depleting, because it's just a matter of turning your attention in the right way, and also much more powerful at the same time. So this is like... Yeah, this is the sort of things that you discover when you read the suttas. And the more you read them, the more you see that this is actually the, the path forward. The downside with wisdom power is that it takes a bit of practice. Yeah, you have to reflect on these things. You have to understand, well, how can I overcome ill will? You have to actually do it again and again and again in such a way that you know how you have to use your mind to overcome it. Yeah, so it takes a bit of practice, it takes a bit of reflection to get there. But once you get there... It is, uh, it is very powerful and useful. Huh? So these are the three kinds of thought. Yeah? The, th- sen- the um, desires for all the sensory objects of the world, uh, the ill will, uh, and then that coldness of heart where you don't care of the, for the consequences of your actions have on others. Uh. And these are the things that we need to overcome. These are the three main ones. Uh. And then for good measure, it says any... Any unskillful qualities that have that have arisen, yeah, you give them up, you get rid of them, so anything else as well. Huh? And then, of course, when that happens, you don't have those distressing and feverish defilements uh, that might arise in someone who lives without dispelling these things, uh, uh, that do not arise when they are dispelled. Uh, this is called defilements, should be given up by dispelling. Yeah. So now I want to dive a bit more into this. What, how does it actually happen? How do we do it? That's kind of the, uh, what this is now going to be about. Some more about dispelling. So this is some of the suttas that I always like to read out. So just uh, hang in there while we do these things uh, as usual. Adding a few bits and pieces here and there. So this is uh, again one of these uh, suttas that uh, to me was a bit of an eye-opener when I read it. The two powers uh, 
Yeah, dve balaha, or something like that. Bala is power in Pali. There are mendicants, these two powers. What two? The power of reflection and the power of development. Yeah, power of reflection, pati sankana bala. Pati sankana means to reflect. Power of reflection, power of development is the bhavana bala. The bhavana, which is the usual word that we use, it's actually used for all the development of the mind from the beginning to the end, but it specifically refers to meditation practice, right? I think that's how it's used even in quite many countries these days. Bhavana is like a term used for meditation. So two things, two powers, right? There's no third power here. It only talks about these two. These are sufficient then for the practice of the path. Yeah. So what are these? What what does the power of reflection? What does it actually do? What is the purpose of the power of reflection? Well, it is this. What mendicants is the power of reflection? It's when someone reflects bad conduct by body, speech, or mind has a bad and painful result in both this life and the next. Reflecting like this, they give up bad conduct by body, speech, and mind and develop good conduct by way of body, speech, and mind, keeping themselves pure. This is called the power of reflection. And um, this is very interesting here. Yeah. Because uh, sometimes, you know, we we use meditation practice in Buddhism to kind of overcome everything, to kind of sort ourselves out, to to you know, to, to whatever we think that meditation is the core of what Buddhist practice is about. Uh, but uh, this here, you know, we actually says that if you want to overcome bad qualities in yourself, uh, it's actually the power of reflection that you're supposed to use, not the power of meditation, the bhavana that comes afterwards. Uh, it is a reflection, reflecting in the right way, which overcomes the defilements of the mind. Yeah, body, speech, and mind. That's what it says here. And uh, this is just so important uh, because it shows you that uh, the path uh, of reflect, the reflection is such an important part of the Buddhist path, uh, so fundamental to make this path actually work. Uh. And of course, the reason for this is that meditation doesn't really work if you have too many defilements. Uh, Defilements are distracting. Yeah, defilements take you into the past, they take you into the future, that make you tired, they make you restless, they do all kinds of things with you. Uh, and I'm sure everyone here has, has experienced some of those uh, uh, feelings sometimes. Uh, it would be a miracle if you hadn't, uh, and we don't believe in miracles, so that means it's impossible. So, <laughs> yeah, so it is, this, is, this is how you, so you need to overcome these things to a large part before you can actually uh, do your meditation practice and this is how you do it you overcome these defilements through reflection not all the defilements there's going to be a, a kind of very refined layer of defilements left when you do when you meditate and the purpose of meditation is to overcome those last defilements uh, but all the main defilements of the mind yeah when the mind is distracted into the future and past everything that stops you from being mindful essentially from being present uh, that is the thing uh, we are overcoming through reflection here. But not just that, uh, even just keeping your precepts, yeah? just being kind, doing the right thing, that too, it happens through reflection. Huh? So if you ask yourself, how can I be more kind in this world? Uh, how can I have more time for people? How can I be so, not so quick to judge others? Uh, 
This is how you do it. You reflect in the right way. And as you reflect in the right way, you start to treat other people better. Yeah, this is what this is all about. So, so it, it's a very powerful tool to change our attitude, our direction, our values, our priorities in life, where we are heading. All of these things are changed through reflecting in the right way. And it's simple things, yeah, you, you would be surprised how simple these things actually are, these reflections. You may sound like this is some kind of super-duper intellectual inter- uh, exercise. You have to have you know, a PhD to be able to do these things. But no, these are very simple things. Uh, and anyone with a, who leans in that direction is fully capable of doing this. It's not difficult. Uh, it's a more a matter of perseverance and application. That is what really matters. Uh, and as you do that, uh, everyone can do these things. Uh, so very, uh, very important, very powerful, <coughs> and important, uh, and learning how to kind of direct the mind in the right direction. And uh, the main, this gives you kind of the result straight away. Yeah, the main reflection is really just to know that when you do something bad, then it has a painful result in this life and in the future life, and this refers mostly to yourself. But of course, also by extension, it refers to others as well. Huh? It's bad for you, bad for others, bad for both, as we will see in a second. Huh? So understanding that it always has bad results, it, you know, it's, it's really problematic. Yeah? And then, once that power is established, then comes the power of development. What mendicants is the power of development? It's when a mendicant develops the awakening factor of mindfulness. Uh, investigation of qualities, uh, energy, rapture, tranquility, stillness, and equanimity, uh, which rely on seclusion, fading away, and cessation, and ripen as letting go. Uh, This is called the power of development. These are the two powers. Uh, The suttas gives many sets of different powers, five powers here, seven powers there, uh, and they are just different ways of looking at the path. uh, But uh, in the two-power version, which is this one, then these are sufficient for the whole way. uh, Basing yourself on sila, you then meditate, and then you reach awakening as a consequence. uh. And um, here, again, the seven factors of awakening. The first one is mindfulness, yeah? And the last one is Last two are stillness and equanimity. So this is all about meditation things, yeah? Mindfulness and then the whole path in which that mindfulness uh, develops and eventually leads into samadhi and equanimity as a consequence. And um, we have these... um, Yeah, we have this beautiful little um, addition there where it says they rely on seclusion, fading away, cessation and ripening as letting go. I will talk more about that later on because uh, this gives some very clear instructions about how uh, the uh, uh, meditation happens. Uh, and uh, so there, there are important things. But very briefly, relying on seclusion means that uh, real meditation happens in seclusion. First bodily seclusion, then mental seclusion. Uh, this is called Kaya Viveka and Chitta Viveka. So, uh, yeah, so from physical seclusion comes the mental seclusion. Fading away and cessation refers to what happens in your mind as you meditate. Yeah, things fade away and cease. Uh, 
So these are the kind of the outcomes or the purpose of meditation. Uh, and that is what allows you then ultimately to lead to letting go. Uh, because uh, you let go when uh, you start to see that things are inherently they can cease and stop and they don't really matter anymore. Then you can let them go completely by end, ending craving here. <clears throat> so that's just in brief. So um, that is that little sutta. And uh, I don't know, It's when you read these things, yeah, it's very hard. I, I don't know, I, I think I must have read this through that probably ten times before eventually one day. Wait a minute, uh, there's something important here. Uh, and it's very hard to kind of grasp the message of some of these things. Uh, and very often you have to see it in context, you have to see other suttas pointing in the right way until the penny actually drops. And then one day, bang, wow, actually this is really interesting uh, and very important. Uh, and uh, the whole idea here, again, it shows you the importance of sila, of morality, of thinking in the right way. Yeah? For is it, that is the real foundation of Buddhist meditation. Uh, also, there's one more thing which is the foundation, and uh, that is uh, uh, right view. Uh, yeah? Because right view also guides you in the right direction. But uh, sila and right view together, these are the, the, the things at the, s- the source that makes meditation possible. Uh, Okay, so let's now go into this in even more detail. Uh, now we're going to have to look at one of my favorite suttas. Every sutta is my favorite, but this is uh, this is also one of those. <laughs> this is the two kinds of thought, the Dveda Vitaka Sutta, found in the Majjhimanikaya, middling sayings number 19. And um, we're ha- going to have a look at a couple of similes as well at the end of the sutta, which are very beautiful, which I haven't normally not normally read out, but this time I will have a, a brief discussion of those similes as well. Here. So, here we are. So this is, again, Ajahn Sujato's translation. So, I have heard, at one time the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jeta's grove, Anattapindika's monastery. Here. There the Buddha addressed the mendicants. Mendicants, venerable sir, they replied. And the Buddha said this, Mendicants, before my awakening, when I was still unawakened but intent on awakening, I thought, why don't I meditate, dwell, live, stay, hang out, by continually dividing my thoughts into two classes? And so I sign sensual, malicious and harmful thoughts, or not harmful, cruel thoughts, to one class, and I assign the opposite, the thoughts of uh, renunciation, goodwill, and compassion to the second class. Then, as I meditated, diligent, keen, and resolute. Uh, yeah. So, this is uh, already very interesting, and I, I, I'm not going to, I always comment on this at length, maybe I won't comment so long this time, but uh, the first thing here which you will notice is that he has translated this passage the first sentence there differently from what normally it is translated. Uh, normally it says, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva. That's normally what you see in that first line. Uh, Before my awakening, pubbe sambodha, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva. But he instead translated, translates this as intent on awakening. Uh, so which one is right, bodhisattva or intent on awakening? Uh, or both, or neither, or is, is there a third one? 
I, I, I would really like to come up with a third one because it always feels nice to have your own, yeah, different one. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, no, this uh, this is actually a really good translation here, and this gets to the point of what this passage is about, uh, because there isn't really any bodhisattvas uh, in the suttas. Yeah, this is the only kind of place you find bodhisattva in this sort of autobiographical passage where the Buddha talks about himself in his very last life just after he goes home from his house, yeah, his home, after he goes into homelessness, before his awakening. That short span of time, those few years, traditionally said to be six years, yeah, that uh, time span, that is when he is a bodhisattva. And there isn't really any much mention of bodhisattvas apart from that. There's one other mention in the Majjhima 123, the Acharya Buddha Sutta, the marvelous and amazing sutta, but uh, I don't take that sutta as a bit more, a bit more dodgy. So I, I don't take that quite so seriously. Yeah. But this is basically what it means. Yeah, you are a bodhisattva is only after you leave your home life, and you, before you reach the awakening, the Buddha. So what is going on here? And what is going on is that uh, what we need to know is what is the word bodhisattva in Pali? What does it actually mean? Very often it is rendered, it's said to be the equivalent of bodhisattva in Sanskrit. And bodhisattva is a kind of a strange word. Bodhi means awakening, sattva means being. So it means like awakening being. It's a little bit weird, awakening being. I'm not sure what that means. Does that mean awakening? You are already awakening a little bit and you're going more or awakening it's not entirely clear what that term is supposed to mean even awakening being here so um uh, but there is an alternative and this was uh, an alternative that uh, probably has existed in buddhist history but uh, the first time i read about it, it was a, a prof from a professor of sanskrit at oxford university who who said this actually this is quite possibly this relates to the uh, sanskrit word bodhisattva and bodhisattva means intent on awakening yeah so the word bodhisattva in this context may very well mean someone who is intent on awakening when is the buddha intent on awakening well after he leaves the home life until he becomes awakened yeah that is that period when he's intent on awakening yeah so it fits the context really really well huh? and it kind of matches what we are what we are seeing here huh? and uh, this is an interesting thing it's very important to understand that the Bodhisattva idea in Buddhism really arose after the Buddha passed away. The Buddha doesn't teach a Bodhisattva path. Yeah, he teaches a path to arahantship, and this is such an important thing because uh, if we are disciples of the Buddha, what should we do? Well, we should obviously practice what he is suggesting. We shouldn't practice what some other person is saying. Where does the Bodhisattva path come fr come from? And uh, the reality is that we don't really know. Yeah, these things have kind of been obscured by history. All we do know is that the Bodhisattva path is something that emerges uh, within the broader schools of Buddhism in a couple of centuries after the Buddha. That's when they emerge. Uh, and they emerge from anonymous authors. Uh, we don't know where they come from. Uh, are we going to trust those anonymous authors in the same way that we're going to trust the Buddha to teach real Buddhism? And to me, it is really 
crazy. It's a really silly idea to kind of trust these later ideas when we have no idea where they came from. Did they come from someone who was awakened? Did they come from someone who remembered the past life? Did it come from just ordinary people? Did it come from philosophers? Where exactly did they arise from? And probably it was a mixture of all of those things. Yeah, and it was kind of stewed together into a nice stew. And oops, out came the book on the Bodhisattva idea. Something like that. That's often what happens with these things. Cook it all up and then it comes out as a kind of nice, uh, the recipe. Yeah, <laughs> however that works. And a lot of the time, and I think this is one of the things that has been made by some of the people who have studied this particular thing, uh, is that they, very likely these things emerged out of that sense of vacuum after the Buddha passed away. Uh, the Buddha is gone. Uh, help! What are we going to do now? Yeah, we, our, the master is gone. Uh, there's no, no one to hold on to, no one to ask the questions, you know. What, you know, is cheese allowed in the afternoon or not? Uh, who are we going to ask those important questions? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit, if you hear every the, the monastics discuss things, that's the kind of things we discuss and we kind of get into, we, and we don't get into fi fights over it, but these are the kind of silly things that sometimes uh, we get into. Uh, and the Buddha answered all the questions. He was always there guiding you. Suddenly he's gone. Such a, 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 bear, a person of such, a, you can imagine, Im incredibly significant for the Sangha, for everyone. Uh, the greatest spiritual genius in, Buddha, in world history, as I like to say, suddenly is gone. It would have been devastating for everyone. And of course, in that uh, vacuum, uh, then uh, it tends to, the uh, um, imagination tends to kind of ferment a little bit, yeah? And you get all these ideas coming out. Uh, and that seems to have what happened. Uh, at the time, at that time, uh, in India, and then the Bodhisattva uh, ideal arose. Uh, but um, you know, uh, we shouldn't take these ideas too seriously, in my opinion. Uh, of course, we, you know, when we evaluate individuals, we can do it differently. Some people may call themselves Bodhisattvas; they may b actually be living really, really well. They may be living pretty much like people who practice like we do, or whatever. Yeah, and of course, that is praiseworthy. It's not no real problem there. Uh, but as a kind of a, a alternative path, uh, it is problematic. Uh, and that is where uh, it's important to be aware of that, uh, that the Buddha never taught the Bodhisattva path. He only taught the Arahant path. Uh. So, uh, yeah, he is intent on awakened. He's still unawakened. And then, of course, he is wise. Yeah, he thinks, he reflects. This is what he does. I thought, uh, why don't I continually divide my thoughts into two classes. I don't agree with Adan Sudato when it says meditate here. I don't think that is right. It is much broader than that. The Pali word is viharati, and it literally means to dwell. Yeah. So it has a sometimes that word doesn't mean meditate, but it means just in general. Yeah. Why when I kind of am hanging out and doing living I divide my thoughts into two classes. Not just when you meditate, but all times you do this. Uh, this is too narrow. Uh, and then uh, you put the thoughts, bad thoughts in one class, and the good thoughts uh, in another class. Yeah? You distinguish the good from the bad, the useful from the useless, uh, those things that lead you forward from those things that lead you backward. Uh. And uh, that is already, yeah, like, as I mentioned before, that's already quite profound because uh, it is difficult to fully understand your mind, to understand all aspects of what is happening within you. 
And then you will notice that uh, then it says, uh, as I meditated, as, as I dwelt in this way, diligent, keen, and resolute. Bhikkhu uh, Bodhis translation, it says it more literally, as I dwelt thus, diligent, keen, and resolute. The thus referring back to what he has just been doing, yeah? That is the meaning of being diligent, keen, and resolute. The meaning is you divide your thoughts into two classes. In other words, it's wisdom power, yeah? The ability to do these things properly. Wisdom power, using wisdom, that is being diligent, that is being keen, that is being resolute. That is what it's saying here, yeah? Yeah. Then, of course, uh, as he did that, uh, a thought of sensual desire arose. Uh, in other words, uh, yay, the things of the world, hooray, I, I love them, I want them, I want more of that, whatever that is. Uh, but then, uh, as soon as the sensual thought started to arise, uh, the Buddha says, I understood. Yeah, he thought. Uh, this is autobiographical. This sensual thought has arisen in me. It leads to my own suffering. It leads to others' suffering. It leads to the suffering of both. It blocks wisdom. It's on the side of anguish. And it does not, actually, it leads away from extinguishment. When I reflected that it leads to my own suffering, it went away. When I reflected that it leads to the suffering of others, it went away. When I reflected that it leads to the suffering of both, it went away. When I reflected that it blocks wisdom, it's on the side of anguish, that it leads away from extinguishment, it went away. So I gave up, got rid of, and eliminated any thoughts related to the sensory world that arose. That is how you get rid of, eliminate, yeah, obliterate. It also had in the previous one. That's how you get rid of it, yeah. And you can see it is all based on reflection, all based on wisdom, thinking about these things in the right way. Thoughts of sensuality arose. You know it's going to be problematic. Remember all the similes that I mentioned before, yeah. That this is where those similes come in. Sensuality is always fraught with competition and violence down the track. It's almost unavoidable. It is inherently unsatisfactory because full of craving. Remember the simile of the dog hanging out at the butcher shop? Yeah, if you don't want to be like a dog outside the butcher shop, you have to basically get rid of these things. The simile of the charcoal pit, the simile of the dream of the borrowed goods, yeah, all of these things come in very handy at this point because it kind of brings out an aspect of sensual that is very easy to forget. Uh, and then the Buddha reminds you, and you bring it up, and you think, yes, the Buddha is right. And when you understand that the Buddha is right, uh, of course, then you give it up. Uh, it leads to your own suffering. Craving is unpleasant. Uh, the violence that comes from these things is unpleasant. Uh, and so you uh, get away from it. Uh. So, And what is, of course, fascinating by this, uh, and interesting with this, is that uh, as soon as the Buddha-to-be reflects like that in this way it went away yeah so and this shows you the difference between the buddha to be and most other people most people try to you have a sensory thought arising and you think oh yeah this is bad it's going to hurt me and then nothing happens it carries on you know what i mean 
yeah, you, you think, oh yeah, this is going to be hurtful. Yeah, I don't really want to go there. But still, it carries on. And the reason is because uh, we haven't really fully understood it yet. Uh, haven't really fully understood why these thoughts are so problematic. And so we still crave for those things, uh, crave for whatever it is. Uh, it still arises in the same way as before. Uh, Uh, you know, don't worry too much about that. Many many cravings that are not really problematic in life, like when you are hungry, you crave for food. Okay, that's not really what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is that excessive craving here that is not based on basic needs. Yeah, the excessive things beyond that. When you are full already, or you are, you know, you are okay, but you 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 want something more, or you you know, you, relationships and uh, Ferraris, that kind of stuff uh, that aren't really. Uh, essential for some people, Ferraris are essential, but for most people, they're they're okay. Yeah. So this is where it comes from. Huh? So you can see here that there's a lot of reflection to be done for these things to be that powerful. Huh? Yeah, to really bite harm, and you can use them to overcome this problem. Actually, I suffer for these things. Uh, this is really problematic. Uh, in the long term, these things are are very hurtful. Huh? Why do we go to war? Why do we have COVID-19? Ultimately, probably from an excessive destruction of nature, some people say, yeah, that we get these things. And where does that, all that come from? It comes from our greed, our trying to you know, draw things out of nature, use nature to the maximum and kind of satisfy all the things that are actually unsatisfied. We can't really satisfy all our craving anyway, and yet we are kind of desperately trying to satisfy the craving that can never be satisfied. It's kind of crazy what we're doing here. And uh, so, so many of the troubles of the world come from that. Yeah. Uh, So many of the problems, the interpersonal problems that we have uh, everywhere, all of these arise ultimately from uh, sensory desire. People who are arias, they don't argue very much. You know, you, you get some arias together, they are usually very peaceful and they kind of coexist very easily. But uh, people in the world, there's endless problems, endless arguments. And if you analyze it all the way down, uh, you will find that a majority of it, uh, a lot of it, some of it comes from ego, sense of self. There's really two sources of arguments. One is sensory things. The other one is the sense of self. Uh, these are the two root sources of arguments. Uh, yeah. And uh, so views and opinions, for example, that has to do with ego. Uh, yeah. Or, uh, or, or you... you um, you don't want to be put down or whatever else it is. Yeah. Uh, so these two things, two areas is where it comes from. Uh. So this is how you have to think. Yeah. Then you think the same thing about others. Uh. You want to be compassionate and kind. You don't want to hurt other beings. Uh, yeah. So if, if what you, how you live hurts others, it's terrible. Uh. You don't want that. Uh. Uh, and then both, usually both get hurt, both you and others at the same time. Then it goes away. Uh. And then there's the other way of reflecting here, yeah, that it blocks wisdom. Huh? And um, I always like this one. This is Panya Nirodika. It's a very, very nice one because uh, it is wisdom that enables us to practice the Buddhist path. Uh, it is wisdom that leads us forward. Uh, and every time the wisdom is blocked, we take two steps back, maybe one or two steps back. Yeah, and uh, that hinders us uh, in we can't really afford to take a step back on this path uh, every step back is going to be a is going to be a lost opportunity uh, yeah so we want to always go forward uh, uh, and so it becomes kind of terrible when it when it blocks wisdom uh, 
Wisdom is the one thing we can never really afford to lose uh, because it's what guides us in the right direction at all times. Uh, it's what knows what is in our best interest and what is not. Uh, if it blocks wisdom, it's bad. On the side of anguish, in other words, uh, it is just unpleasant uh, and bad. Uh, and uh, the last one, it leads away. It does, it's not just that it le doesn't lead to extinguishment, it leads away from extinguishment. Annibana uh, sangvattanika or something like that, uh, or Nibbana Asangvatanaka, I can't remember it exactly. So there you are. So this is how you need to reflect. Uh, yeah. And as you reflect like that, uh, then you uh, start to see the problems, uh, and you start to see the solution to these problems. Uh. So you can see here there's some very simple building blocks that allow us to purify our minds. Uh. First of all, you have to understand the danger in these things. Uh. It is not so easy to see with sensual objects, but if you put a bit of effort into it, you can. More easy to see with ill will. Yeah? Ill will is very easy. It's a very destructive force in our society. Yeah? It's more easy. So first of all, see the danger. Yeah? Once you understand the danger in these things, yeah, then the second thing is mindfulness. Yeah? And the more you understand the danger, the stronger the mindfulness will become anyway, because you become really a bit worried and not worried in a bad sense but you become a bit concerned about these things yeah i better get my act together and that feeling of i better get my act together that will give rise to mindfulness these things will be at the back of your mind uh, reminding you of the danger of these things uh. so when you understand the problem uh, your also mindfulness tends to arise uh. so understanding the problem mindfulness being alert being aware of the problem arising uh, and then you have to have the a counteractive, counteracting um, method or the counteracting strategy yeah, that counteracts the problem uh, and then helps you overcome that thought, that action, whatever it is that you want to overcome. Uh. So this is kind of the sequence of things. And all of those you have to kind of, uh, yeah, it kind of come into place. Uh. Seeing the danger in things, uh, having the mindfulness and then the strategy to overcome it. Uh. And most of that is right view. Yeah, it is right view because understanding the danger of these things is precisely right view in the suttas. Uh, why are the sensory objects of the world dangerous? Uh, this is right view. Why is ill will? Why is even callousness or, or hardness, hard-heartedness? Uh, um, why is that bad? Uh, yeah, and that's the right view. Mindfulness uh, and then the strategy to overcome these things. Uh. So um, that is the sensual thoughts. Then come the thoughts of ill will and the uh, cruel or harsh thoughts, the uh, thoughts of being utterly inconsiderate towards other beings. Uh, ah, actually, inconsiderate, it says there. Ooh, I wonder who put that in there. <laughs> I don't think it's answered that. <laughs> <laughs> I have sometimes I've edited the text a little bit because I just wanted to put my own things in there. It's always like that. You, you always prefer your own stuff. Uh. <laughs> then, as I meditated again, yeah, or as I hung out, uh, diligent, keen, resolute, a ill thought motivated by ill will, yeah, malicious thought arose, uh, or an inconsiderate thought, yeah, a kind of harsh and then merciless thought arose. Uh. I understood that this merciless thought has arisen in me. It leads to the hurting myself or suffering, my own suffering, hurting others and hurting both. It blocks wisdom. It's on the side of anguish. 
It does not. It leads away from extinguishment. Uh, when I reflected that it leads to hurting myself, hurting others, uh, hurting both, uh, it went away. Uh, when I reflected that it blocks wisdom, it's on the side of anguish, uh, and it doesn't, li and it is away from extinguishment. Uh, it went away. Uh, so I gave up, uh, got rid of, and eliminated any cruel thought that arose. So. Uh, we can have much more look later on at how exactly how to deal with the malicious thoughts uh, because there are some beautiful sutta which I read out on every single retreat I do have, which I will read out this time as well. Okay, so um, um, then comes a nice little uh, uh, extra thing here when a Men, whatever a mendicant fr uh, frequently thinks about and considers uh, becomes their heart's inclination. Uh, if they often think and consider uh, thoughts related to the sensory world, uh, they've given up the thoughts of renunciation to cultivate sensual thoughts. Uh, the mind inclines to sensual thoughts. Uh, and they often think about and con oh, and then they have, have the other ones. Uh, if they often think about and consider malicious thoughts, uh, yet the mind inclines to malicious thoughts. Uh, and if they often have the harsh, merciless thoughts, uh, then the mind inclines to harsh and merciless thoughts. Uh, this is the idea of the inclination of the mind. Uh, yeah, and um, these inclinations are often very strong yeah they're very powerful inclinations uh, they're often things that we have carried with us from a long long time in the past uh, especially the desire for the sensory objects of the world this is very deep-seated uh, in the in the human mind uh, yeah because that's where we have lived we tend to be immersed in that world uh, and unless you have been reborn in the brahma loka recently uh, have any of you been reborn in brahma loka recently maybe maybe you don't know maybe some of you probably have actually because you this is probably why you're here. And um, so, so we are so immersed in this that the habit pattern is so strong uh, of leading that way. It's very hard for us to kind of get out, step out of this uh, and see what is going on. Uh. And because it is so so strong, we are like this super tanker, yeah, like that ship in the Suez Canal, like it's stuck, stuck in the Suez Canal. It is so big, uh, it can't steer properly, it just bang, it blocks the whole thing. Uh. Yeah, you saw that. What was it called? The Ever Given, or whatever it was called, uh, that, that ship. And um, uh, it's a nice name, Ever Given. Uh, the name is nice, but uh, it still didn't steer properly. Hmm. Okay, so there's, there's more to things than the name. You have to practice well as well. Uh. <laughs> so um, we are like these tankers, we're like these container ships, yeah, with a lot of freight. We are very hard to steer. And you cannot really change that direction, the inclination you have. It takes a long time to change that inclination uh, because the mind is heading in a certain direction, has been doing it for so long, uh, like these uh, massive container ships, the ever given. Uh, and uh, so we need to be very patient with ourselves. Uh, never be hard with yourselves. Always know that your mind's inclination is such. Uh, it takes a long time to steer it around. Uh, but as you do so, it's very beautiful when it, when it starts to happen. Uh, you can see gradually your ill will, your hard, harshness, all of these things, they start to decline. Uh, yeah? And something else takes their place, something beautiful. Uh, a gentleness, a softness of heart, uh, a care and consideration for the beings in the world. Uh, 
And you can see this happening over the years, over the months and years. Gradually, 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 your ever, ever given is heading in a different direction. Uh, yeah, going somewhere else. Uh, and that steam train now is, or, or steamship, or actually steamship. That's a long time ago. That that super tanker or super container ship is now heading in a different direction. Uh, on, until eventually, it's heading in a 180 degree opposite direction. But the habit, the force of the mind is still similar. So, so now you have the habit in the opposite direction. Uh, and you can't avoid being kind anymore. Uh, it's like become such a powerful habit. You, you have to be kind. Uh, and that kind of, that's okay. Yeah? <laughs> you don't have to worry about that habit. Uh, you don't have to worry about uh, the mind always wanting to do the right thing. Uh, that's marvelous. And it feels great. It feels wonderful. Uh, and there's, there's some habits that you are really happy about, even though you may not be in control. You don't have to be in control when things are going well. You can just allow things to kind of go in their own way. Yeah? The only time you really want to be in control is when things are going wrong. Yeah? That's when you need to be in control, in charge of things. Yeah? So be very gentle with yourself. Understand that the habits of the mind are really hard to turn around. Uh, ask yourself instead, how can I recondition myself? Uh, yeah, that is a really significant question. Stand back, watch, observe, understand what is going on. What is going on is usually very simple things. Yeah, okay, why, why am I looking at this person in this way? Why am I being so attracted to these silly sensual pleasures when actually they don't really mean anything? Yeah. That is how you rethink reality. Why am I attached to this stupid belongings? I'm going to die in a few years' time. I'm you know, already 12 years old. I'm going to die soon. <laughs> yeah, life is short. It doesn't matter how young you are. Yeah, everyone here is over twelve, so we all gonna we all have a problem. Yeah? <laughs> so uh, this is the thing, yeah, and this is then how you recondition that mind. That should be the that is the important thing, and have, be very generous to other people as well. Yeah? If other people sometimes we are so demanding that other people should change. Yeah? You know what it's like if you live together as husband and wife or, or whatever relationship you have with anyone. We want them to change. Change. Don't be like that. I didn't marry you for this personality trait. I married you for the other personality trait. I didn't know you had this one if I had known. <laughs> and we want them to change. But don't expect your partner to change. Change is difficult. Very, very hard. Remember that. Either you accept them for who they are, or you give them up and you become a monastic. Yeah, those are the two <laughs> options. <laughs> That's really the way to do things. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and these are very important uh, kind of considerations. Uh, and uh, as we think about that in the right way, and it's so beautiful when you see that freight ship turning around, uh, heading in a new direction. Yeah, building up steam towards something positive. Uh, it's so, it's so delightful. I have seen that. I'm not saying I have gotten very far in my monastic life, but I, have see, I, I was much, much worse before. Yeah? So now my, 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 my kind of big ship is heading a bit more in the right direction, which is, which is marvelous. <laughs> so um, that is about inclining the mind yeah? and learning how to gradually change uh, uh, your thinking. And so you start going in a different direction. Then comes this beautiful simile to um, underscore this. Uh, suppose it's the last month of the rainy season. Uh, the crops grow closely together uh, and the cowherd must take care of the cattle. Uh, he taps and pokes them, 
uh, with his staff on this side and that to keep them in check. Why is that? For he sees that if they wander into the crops, he could be executed, imprisoned, fined, or condemned. So uh, this is the we are like cowherds, yeah. The, our mind is the cow, <laughs> and it doesn't say so much for intelligence, does it? The mind is our the cow is the mind is like a cow, and uh, in the sense it is, yeah. It's, there are similarities. It's the kind of the idea of the habits, yeah. Go straying into the wrong field, uh, straying into the wrong th- thinking. Yeah. So we tap it gently, yeah? and that tapping is using wisdom. Yeah, tap it this way. Don't think like that. Yeah, it's it's going to hurt over there. Yeah, that's going to be painful. You're going to lose all your wisdom if you go over there. Mind, mind, don't go there. Okay, yes, sir. I'll go. Yes, ma'am. I'll go a different direction. And then you go in a different direction. You poke your mind very gently. And why? Because you will be executed if the mind goes there. <laughs> executed. Yeah, the chopping block of suffering. Yeah, the uh, the problems in life uh, that uh, arise as a consequence. So you uh, you gently keep yourself in uh, in check, yeah? and then you avoid the suffering of life. Yeah? So we are all like cowherds. Yeah? yeah, and in the same way, I saw that unskillful qualities uh, have drawbacks of sordidness and corruption. Yeah? And that skillful qualities have the benefit and cleansing power of renunciation. Huh? So uh, the swordness, the Pali words, yeah, I can't remember that. There are some nice Pali words so that actually um, mention this. No, I, I'm not going to look it up. It's too much hassle here. But um, uh, sordidness and corruption, yeah, the mind is kind of corrupted by these things. Uh, it is spoiled, yeah, it is not, uh, it is impure sword it is like drawn low and it's interesting when you feel just check out your mind yeah when it is pure nice and bright and when it has kind of when it is defiled by some kind of defilement uh, and feel the difference uh, and one it, it, there's a big 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 difference in how we perceive the mind in those two cases when the mind is kind of lower down by defilements it feels kind of uh, it doesn't feel nice yeah it feels a bit like as it says here a bit sordid and corrupt uh, yeah and there's something very beautiful about the pure mind a pure mental state uh, it sounds almost you know pure it sounds, yeah who wants to be pure but actually the point is that it's a lot of happiness to have that pure mental state uh, it's very very pleasant uh, yeah, it has a sense of power to it as well. The mind is powerful and radiant and beautiful. It's still and calm and collected and feeling bliss and happiness. Who doesn't want that? Yeah, so so it's actually very useful to look at the mind from these various different angles. The corrupt and sordid mind is actually a very unpleasant mind. It's not a mind that people really want and uh, whereas the opposite is the renunciation, the giving up of these negative things. Uh, renunciation may sound really terrible to most people. I don't want to renounce what you're talking about. But actually what we're renouncing is something dirty and ugly and unpleasant and full of craving and tanna, which drives us around and makes us act do bad acts of violence and criminality in the long run. Uh, it's bad. Yeah, that's the whole point of it. Uh, 
So renunciation is actually something very positive, if you know what it means. Uh, it starts off by renouncing and just keeping the precepts, uh, and then gradually it means reducing your attachments to the sensory world, uh, so you can actually withdraw into something within, which is far more powerful and far more conducive to happiness, reduction in suffering, and all of that stuff. Uh, renunciation sounds like, oh, I don't want to go there, but this is because we don't understand what it really means. Uh, it's actually something extraordinarily uh, as it says, a cleansing power, yeah, cleans out the mind. Uh, it has the uh, benefit and power of cleaning, and etc. Uh, it's very beneficial for you and also for others. Uh. So uh, that's why we have brainwashing because it cleans out the mind. The cleansing power of brainwashing is what it means. Uh. <laughs> so um, that is the first half of the uh, Dveda Vitaka Sutta, and that is about how to overcome the uh, negative thoughts. And the second half is about how to uh, build up the good thoughts. Yeah, And uh, there's no point in starting that now because we only have a couple of minutes left of this, this session. So I will uh, leave it there, and then we will come back to the how to build up the good qualities tomorrow and uh, how to then, where that leads eventually, and uh, with a couple of beautiful similes at the very end. Uh, so uh, we'll stop there, and we'll see you back again at uh, 6.30 this evening. Here.